So, uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, the first uh, 17 verses. Um, now, one of, the, one of the wonderful things about being human beings, and there's lots of wonderful things, uh, is that we're different. Uh, it maybe seems obvious, and I suppose nothing remarkable about that, but just think for a minute what it would be like if we were all, all the same, uh, having the same emotions, the same characters, thinking the same. It'd be horrible. But God has created us as, as unique human beings, and, and there's no one exactly like you. And while, we're, while we are all fallen creatures, sinful and rebellious, and a, a pathetic caricature of what we're meant to be, still in some, some way we carry the image of God. And in, in, in the church of Christ, in Christ's body here on earth, together, when, with all our different characters, we in some way display something special, of something, something of Christ himself, uh, which of course will only be made perfect in heaven. When all the, as if all the, the colors come together into a, a, a glorious white light. Uh, it's a dimension in a way that we don't see on our own. And it's one of the reasons why we do come. There are other reasons, of course, why we do come together like this to worship our God and to lift up the name of our Savior. And one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that he comes to us as we are. He doesn't love us as we are, but he comes to us as we are. And he comes to us in, in, in different ways. And he comes into our lives in different ways. And he makes himself known to us in different ways. We know that. It, it's never the same. And I'm sure around us, around us here, um, we'd all have different stories to say of uh, maybe our first encounter, how, how God encountered us in our lives. We'd all have different stories. Now, in the opening chapters of John's Gospel, we're, we're introduced to, to three uh, characters, others, of course, but three principally. And it, it's always notice, notable that they're, they are so, so different. We've got, in chapter 3, we've got the respectable uh, religious leader, a Pharisee, who met Jesus at night. And in chapter 4, we have the disreputable Samaritan woman from Sychar that Jesus met by a well. And in chapter 5, in this chapter, we have uh, an invalid, friendless man that Jesus meets by a pool. And they're all quite different characters. And, and Jesus engages with them in quite different ways. With the Pharisees, it's something like a, you could almost say like a theological discussion. And during which Jesus speaks the most, probably the most famous verse in the whole, the whole Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And with the woman from Sychar, it's, it's a long uh, roundabout conversation before he gets to the crux of the matter. Um, someone said it's almost like he's wooing her into the kingdom. And you have that wonderful result when she rushes back to the village and, and, and tells them, could, come and meet this man. Could he be the Messiah? And they come out to meet him and persuade him to come and stay for some days with them. And then they say at the end, which is amazing, it's not because of what you said to her. 
Not to her, they say, it's not because of what you said. We have heard for ourselves and know that he is the saviour of the world. And then we get to the man at the pool. The counter is so, so different as we shall see. So let's look at John chapter 5. And if you've got it open, do have it there uh, with you. Um, I got a, a present uh, from Sheila, uh, my wife, um, uh, recently um, for a birthday, for a special birthday. And it was a copy of the English Standard Version of the, the Bible, nicely bound. I really love it. It's really, it's, I really enjoy it. I enjoy it. That's a terrible thing to say of the word God, but it, it, it's, a, it's a, a, a really nice version to read. And, um, but it, it's what they call a red letter version of the Bible, where all of Jesus' words are, are come out in, in red. And I wasn't very sure about that at first. <clears throat> but when I read this passage, Jesus' words popped out in red as clear as day. And uh, I'm not, I also should say that I'm not really a preacher. It's a long, long time since I've been in this kind of situation. And it's a, it's a pretty scary one, I can tell you, believe me. Uh, but I know enough about sermons to, let, to know that it's quite good to have points, quite good to have three points. So there you have it, the three, the three verses, the three things that Jesus say jump out. In red, if you've got a red letter version of the Bible. In verse 6, it's a question. In verse 8, it's a command. In verse 11, it's a challenge and a warning. So, the question. And, and what, what, a, what a question. Jesus is uh, coming up to Jerusalem um, for a feast uh, could have been the Passover. No, we're not sure. It's mentioned of the Passover in chapter 2 of John. We can't be certain. But he comes to the pool of Bethsaida by the sheep gate. And there's just a thought that maybe that, that mention that it's the sheep gate that Jesus has come into Jerusalem, maybe reminding of us of the sheep coming, brought in for the sacrifice. But he comes to the pool, which is surrounded by four colonnades uh, where many people were told sick people uh, would be sheltering from, from the heat of the sun and in the hope of benefiting, benefiting from the, the healing waters when, when they were disturbed apparently. And among the many Jesus comes upon this man who he had learned had been an invalid for, for a long time for 38 years, half a lifetime really. And he spoke to the man <clears throat> with a question. And wh what a question. Wh what, a th what a thing to say. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't really sound very sympathetic, does it? I mean, the man was ill for 38 years. It sounds pretty harsh. Do you want to be healed? You know, it's almost like one of these silly questions that people ask you when you've come in and you're absolutely drenched the skin and somebody says is it raining and you want to say no no there was a, I just found a bucket of water outside and I poured it over myself or you're in the, in the trolley at B&Q and you're filled up with loads of wallpaper and paste and paint and cashier says are you doing some decorating you know? and you want to say no no I, I, I'm going to plant them in the garden but, but Jesus doesn't ask silly questions 
His questions, they, they get to the root. They, they cut right to the heart. They get to where the problem really is. And in this man's case, it's, it's his desire. What, what is it? What is it he wants? What does he, what does he really want? Does he, does he really want to be healed? It, it does sound very harsh, you know. But sometimes it's, it's, it's a valid question to ask. Sometimes. Um, we, were, we were listening a few weeks ago to Andy Robson speaking about what God was doing in, in Charleston, the amazing things that are going on and the work that's going on there. And, and just in passing, he mentioned the appalling statistic that uh, Scotland is top of the European League, not, not of football, but of, of drug deaths. Because apparently last year there was something like 1,300 drug deaths in Scotland. And that was 295 per million of the population. And the next country in Europe... In, this, in that league, in that infamous league, is Sweden, at, at which, who have 81. A shocking statistic. And, 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 and worse than that, it doesn't actually, it talks about drug deaths, it doesn't talk about drug lives, lives and families that have been wrecked and savaged and torn apart by, by the terrible curse. And, and we know, humanly speaking, there's no answer. There's no solution. Our the local MP here in, in the in Dundee West uh, lost his job over this statistic. Uh, but the truth is, the solution, the solution is beyond the power or influence of politicians. And I, I remember uh, some years ago speaking to a doctor who, who worked in uh, a grim uh, housing scheme in Paisley and where many of his patients were drug addicts. And I was saying, what... Um, what, 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 what's the answer to it? And he said, I don't know. He said, there are lots of schemes, there are lots of different ideas about what should be done. Uh, but he said, very revealing, he, he said, in my experience, the only people who have managed to free themselves from bondage, from this bondage, from, who have come out of the addiction, have been people who really wanted to. So it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask, not always, but sometimes. It's a perfect, reasonable question to ask someone in the grip of any form of addiction or gambling or alcohol or abusive relationship. You know, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be better? Do you really want to be free? And for this man, <clears throat> it was the right question. Now, he must have known that the right answer should have been yes. Lord, I do want to be healed. But instead, it was Sir. And he went into what could well have been a long ramble of miserable moaning and complaining. And you very quickly get the picture. Here was someone who you might call was their own um, worst enemy. You would probably say, I, I, I have no friends. And you would almost want to scream and say, have you, have you ever wondered why? When you're such a, a miserable, self-pitying bore, we wouldn't say it, of course. You might think it. Could, but could it be that he actually quite liked being the victim, being the one hard done by? Could, could it be that he quite liked 
being able to complain and being frightened that you might lose that. Um, he is very much, I think, like um, the man that in Psalm 73 this, that's attributed to Asaph, um, who, is, who was another mourner. And when he said, um, I was envious of the arrogant, verse 3 of, chapter, of Psalm 73, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've been, I've been good all my life, and what good has it done me? They are evil, and life's easy for them. And I wonder if you recognize that kind of person. Or more importantly, and this is hard, do, do you recognize it in you being that kind of person? And um, this world uh, doesn't help much there because um, it's almost as if defining yourself as a victim is, is a, is a, gives you a status. Um, perversely it's almost something to be desired because it gives you entitlement and because it seems your sins whatever they are can be overlooked or forgiven even because others have sinned worse against you and of course that's, that's blasphemy because it's only God who forgives sins through Jesus Christ for this man, it was, it was the right question, and it cut right to the heart. And somehow you would expect Jesus at this time to express some kind of sympathy. Uh, just think of the way he dealt with the woman in the previous chapter. You, would, you might have said something like, you know, I'm, 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 I feel for you, I'm sorry, maybe, maybe I can help or someone to help so we can sort this out. But that's not what this man gets. It isn't sympathy. It isn't positive strokes. It's, it's a command. The question might have seemed harsh, but this is almost brutal. Almost as if Jesus interrupts him in his ramble and says, never mind all of that. Take up your bed and walk. Stop talking. Start walking. And 30 years, an invalid, without any medication, without any help, without any physiotherapy. He, he stands up, picks up his bed, his mat, and he walks. The man obeyed. He was healed. It was a miracle. By the word from Jesus' lips, the man was healed instantly. His limbs were instantly given the power to move. 
But more than that, more than that, I think, he was, he was given the, the desire to be healed. He, he obeyed and he was healed. And maybe that was the real miracle. You know, from, from a self-obsessed, self-pitying victim, his heart was, was changed and he obeyed the command. I suppose you could say that when the king says, go, you go. But Jesus doesn't force us to be healed. And while he wishes that all would be saved and that no one would perish, he does not force us to be saved. Alistair was saying something about that this morning when he talked about a state of willingness. Jesus seems to have given this man a new heart to stop grumbling and to obey. And that, that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Jesus not only saves us and frees us from guilt and the power of Satan, death and hell, but he gives us a, gives us a heart to love and obey him. And to me, uh, as a Christian, I think that's the most astonishing thing. It's astonishing that I have within me a desire, a, a desire to love and to serve and to please my Lord. And I have that in my heart and I know he put it there because it wasn't there before. So we have a, a blunt question and a simple command. And the third word, maybe not so easy this time, is, is a challenge and, and a warning. <clears throat> the man went on his way and it was the Sabbath and the Jews, the religious leaders who were hostile to Jesus, he took him to task and for carrying his bed on the Sabbath and disobeying the law, carrying a load on the Sabbath. But of course they had, they had twisted the law of God, which was, which was to do with carrying loads to the market for business. Um, the the Ten Commandments, the, the, the commandment said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it was, it was Jeremiah, who, the prophet, who, who stood in the city gate and, and warned the people not to carry loads for business on the Sabbath. He warned them with these words, take care for your lives. Don't, don't do this. And later, Nehemiah, when they came back to Jerusalem, he, when he challenged the people who were making wine and bringing loads of figs and grain and fish to sell in the market and, and profane, profaning the Sabbath, he said, this is, this, this is what your ancestor did and look what happened to them. But the Jews had twisted it and made a mockery of God's law with their own perverse rules and picked this man up because he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And they, they said, who is this fellow who told you to do this? <clears throat> now, extraordinarily, the man didn't know Jesus. Amazing as that may seem, he didn't know who he was. But he did know one thing. He recognized his authority. Like in the same way that Paul, who was sent sprawling on the road to Damascus, he didn't recognize Jesus, but he knew he was the Lord. He recognized the authority. And I was remembering listening to or watching the news uh, 
some years ago, in 1980, I think it was, when there was a siege in the Iranian embassy. It was a scary event at the time. There was hostages taking, taken, and some of them were, were shot. And it eventually came to the situation where one was to be shot every, every hour unless the demands were met. <clears throat> and finally, the SAS stormed the building in an, an amazing way with smoke and, and, and bombs and, and different things and all sort of chaos. And one of the hostages, in one of his testimonies, he said, and it always stuck with me, he said he, he'd been traumatized over these days in this situation, not knowing what to think, shaken. And then in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of the smoke, this figure was there who said, get down, get out. And he said, I didn't, I had no idea who he was, but I knew he had to be obeyed. He recognized the voice of authority. So this man didn't know Jesus. But John tells us beautifully in verse 14 that later Jesus found him. Jesus found him. He was, he was found by Jesus. And he was found in the, in the temple. We can only wonder why he was there. Could it be surely that he was there to thank God for what had happened to him in his life? Maybe to make a sacrifice. But it is significant that that was where Jesus found him. Like, like the other grumbling man I mentioned in Psalm 73, uh, verse 16, after, after all the moaning and complaining and the grumbling, he says, And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned. Their end. Then his eyes were opened. When he went to the temple, his eyes were opened. And this man had his eyes opened in the temple when he saw Jesus. And again, <clears throat> what Jesus says to him comes as a bit of a shock. Again, you would expect maybe this time some words of encouragement to help him on his way, in his, on his in in his life and instead it is it is a warning see you're well again stop sinning or worse may happen to you now this is difficult <clears throat> and I don't have Andy's sweetie shop as he said of variety of commentaries to pour over and I'm not a theologian or a bible scholar either and People have had different views on, on what perhaps Jesus was meaning, some um, including Calvin. And um, one of the things I know is that if you have three points in a sermon, that's good. If you mention Calvin, that gives you even more credence. Uh, so there you are. But the view is that the man had suffered because of a particular sin in his life. And Jesus is saying, you, you think being an invalid it's bad, it'll be worse next time if you don't change your ways. And others, others say that it can't be a specific sin. And they say, they, they, they're mentioning the blind man in John chapter 9 later when, when the disciples asked Jesus, was it, was it this man's sin or is his parents' sin that caused him blindness? And Jesus said, no, it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. So that we could say that Jesus was calling him to repent and turn from his old ways because if he didn't, he would face the final judgment, which would be much worse. 
And that might be the lesson. Now, I don't know. I don't know. And sometimes when we don't know, um, and it's not clear in Scripture, we maybe find we're digging in the wrong place and maybe missing what's in front of our noses. Because what Jesus says is, is quite clear. It's stop sinning. Turn your back on your past life of sin. Don't, don't accommodate sin. Don't, don't do deals with sin. Don't, don't flirt with sin. Don't be casual with sin. And sometimes I think we have to learn, and we can learn, from, from those who've, <clears throat> who have lived lives that have been all but, but destroyed by sin. You know, com- maybe completely immoral lives in bondage to all sorts of things, alcohol, substances, gambling, maybe opening the door to the occult, all sorts of evil, but who have been wonderfully touched by God and saved through the blood of Jesus and made new by his Holy Spirit, and who see very clearly what they've been saved from and resolutely set their face against it. I'm thinking of someone in particular, and say, No, I'm not going back there. I don't want to have anything to do with even even with the things that remind me of my past sinful life. Thinking of what Jude says in verse 20 and verse 22, those who, who hate the very clothes stained by corrupted flesh. Oh, it's, it, it, it is a battle, I know, but we must fight and we need to hear that. We need, we so need to hear that. Jesus Jesus knew his man. He, he knew that a softly, softly, considerate, compassionate, supposedly approach was not the way. He needed to be compassionately bold and told firmly. And Jesus won't shy away from that. And he won't with us either. Stop sinning. But do you... Do you do you find that maybe discouraging? The challenge to stop sinning? Uh, almost like it's you know, an, another row, another telling off, another that sends us back into despondency. You know, we might say, it's, it's no use telling me to stop sin. Believe me, I've tried it. Or, a, or as someone has put it, like uh, with a, a bird with broken wings saying, fly, fly, fly. Flap harder. If so, there's one final point, and it destroys my three points because there's a fourth one, and it's a fourth thing that Jesus says, a fourth thing that he says that jumps out in red uh, from, from, from my Bible in John chapter 5. And it's when he addresses not the man, but the Jews. And when, when they're accusing him of disobeying the Sabbath laws, when they're persecuting him, as John says, Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And that's the thing. The one who said, get up and walk, 
is the same one who says, stop sinning. And he can say that because he can give us the power to do it. Jesus is working and working in us. He's, he's giving us a heart to, to desire him, to obey him. He's giving us the ability to get up and walk in his way. And he's giving us the power to turn from sin and to live a holy life devoted to him. And it's a work that he is doing. It's a work he has begun and it's a work he will not give up until it is complete. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for coming into our lives, for intervening in our lives, for your grace and your mercy and your love. And despite who we are and where we've been, we thank you, Father, that you have begun a work in us by your Holy Spirit. So help us, Lord, to, to lean on you and accept this work until you bring it to completion through Jesus and in Jesus' name. Amen.